Our teaching passage this morning is Matthew chapter 16, and Rose read the first part of that for us, and I just want to finish out those couple verses. So Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, I'm going to pick up in verse 17. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces, the gates of Hades, will not overpower it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Let's pray together to ask God to speak to us this morning. God, you are here with us right now. God, I pray that whatever situation in life we find ourselves in, that we can hear from you this morning. God, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. Help us hear from your word this morning. May the meditation of my heart and the words that come out of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want everyone to turn to their neighbor and say rock. All right, turn to your other neighbor and say rock. If you've got another. Okay, now, now play game of rock, paper, scissors real quick. Let's go. Who's going to win? Bonus points if you pick rock. Someone's got to win. We're going. There we go. So get, get you a little warmed up this morning into it, into our time together. If you're doing this at home, hopefully you won. Um, here, hopefully you were keeping score because we may come back to that again. But in, in Tom McCarthy's 2015 novel, Satin Island, the protagonist, simply known as You, capital U, is tasked by a multinational company to compile the Great Report, a document that captures the contemporary global moment. As an anthropologist, someone who studies people and cultures in their native lands, Yu spends his time flying across the world, observing, recording, and chasing down leads, hunting meaning in a web of complexity. But he wishes to be an anthropologist of the contemporary, not observing and recording faraway cultures, but the global culture in which he lives. However, the task of capturing the current cultural mood becomes near impossible. As culture is in constant flux, it's expanding complexity beyond grasp. As you waits for a flight in an airport, he begins to take notice of the hub around him. As a symbolic of our contemporary epoch, not a destination but a transfer place, constantly in flux, constantly in change, constantly in motion. As he waits, his phone buzzes with text messages from the, his boss. He speaks with his girlfriend on Skype while simultaneously surfing the internet, blurring the lines between field and home, observer and observed. We've all found ourselves in moments like that where we multitask with the noise and the flurry of activity around us. All around him are the fragments of sound, the whoosh of steam from espresso machines, the spurts of music and conversation, television screens in the lounge broadcast a football match, a market bombing, an oil spill disaster. The images reflect off and onto the smooth surfaces of the nearby luxury stores, creating a collage of carnage 
from the bombing, the devastating oil spill, mixing the objects of chaos and confusion with desire and wonder. The complexity, the flux, the atmospherics of the hub of the airport creates in you a feeling of vertigo, tinged with a slight nausea, an awkward sense of things being out of sync, out of whack. Mark Sayers comments on this book and this analysis and says it's no accident that you is called you, for we are all you, all trying to interpret our world and mine it for meaning. But we are overwhelmed with the sheer volume of options and information, struggling to keep our head above the waters of superabundance. There is a common effort to stay afloat. And so we retreat to non-places. The effort to retreat to safety is not only counterproductive, but also forms our identities in such a way that we hamstring ourselves in our pursuit of human flourishing. We retreat to non-places to find safety from the chaos. It was on a retreat away from the hotbed of activity that Jesus takes his disciples away from Galilee and moves to Caesarea Philippi, way up north in uh, Israel. And so I got a map here if you're not quite sure where that is. And so you'll see up on top, there's Caesarea Philippi. You follow the river, there's a dot there. And so Jesus retreats with his disciples away from the hotbed of activity. And he's preparing his disciples in this retreat and from this retreat to begin a journey to Jerusalem where he would lay down his life not only for them, but for all humanity. This retreat complicated the purpose of Jesus' ministry for, this, for the disciples because there in Caesarea Philippi stood major worldview options that were contrary to God's way. I've got a next picture to take a look at Caesarea Philippi. And if you're not familiar with Caesarea Philippi, there are, are temples of various options and worldviews where, where people, when they would go here, they would, they would find emperor worship. They would, they would find a, a cave where, where babies were sacrificed, where there were there, there goat worship, where there was even a temple of the Greek god Zeus. And so here in this, this cluster, in this town, the options of the world for belief were before everybody. And there, Jesus takes his disciples almost to compare himself with the, the worldview options that were contrary to God's way. And the reason this confused Jesus' followers is because in their mind, they sh Jesus should be, spent, be spending time purifying Israel. Yet it seems like he is intent on defiling it by their retreat to a place no true follower of the living God would go. Again, it's as if Jesus deliberately set himself against the background of various worldviews and all the history and splendor and demanded to be compared to them. And it's within this backdrop that Jesus finds himself asking the question to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? In the flurry of activity, 
in the chaos of people trying to figure out who is Jesus. Who do the people say that I am? And then he turns the question to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And it's that question that we actually looked at last week. And so if you were watching us online, the, the audio cut out near the end, and John and I kind of capstoned off that sermon via our midweek podcast. So if you want to know how that, that, as we looked at the identity of Jesus in comparison to the worldview options of the age, we, we addressed that last week, and you can go back and watch those teaching and the We concluded that on our midweek podcast. But the longing question, the driving question, is who is the person who is supposed to bring renewal to God's chosen people and both their spirits in their land? And the disciples, we see, list several common answers. And they all fall short of who Jesus really is. And in a misunderstanding about Jesus' identity, there was also a misunderstanding about his mission. They wanted a political Messiah to come in and kick out everybody, to overthrow the corrupt powers oppressing Israel. But instead, Jesus purifies Israel through an unexpected means. And it's at this location of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus resolutely says, I am going to Jerusalem to lay down my life for you. Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So, as those who knew Jesus intimately, the church is also a community of people who proclaim Jesus confidently. If we look at the response to Peter, Jesus, this is what he says. He says, my father revealed this to you. And then he says in verse 18, And also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces, the gates of Hades, will not overpower it. This is a powerful proclamation of Jesus. And in this this section, Jesus says rock. Say that word out loud with me again, rock. rock. So what is this rock that Jesus is talking about? The first option that usually is presented in this passage is that Jesus is referring to Peter. Peter is also a word for Petros, and so it's this play on words of sorts. That as Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. Is Jesus saying, on Peter, I will build my church, or through Peter, I will build my church. Now, if we continue the story a little bit later, if you flip, flip over to Acts chapter 2, which I would encourage you to do this week and read through Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. God does use Peter to proclaim a powerful message of the history of Israel and show how Jesus is the fulfillment, the long-awaited Messiah, which is the exact proclamation that he makes in this passage. And people respond to it. And they ask a question, what must we do to be saved? That same news is shared with us today. That as we identify, as we hear the news, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy, that Jesus lays down his life for us through the cross and raises to new life, that we have hope and life in him. 
As we identify Jesus with that, we are asked the question, and that question is really offered to you as well. What must we do to be saved? And Peter's response on that day is he says, repent and believe and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we make that same plea to you today, that if Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, what must you do to be saved, to say yes to him, to come under his rule and his reign? To say yes, to trust and surrender, to repent and believe, to take a step and follow. Now there's a little bit misunderstanding when, when people compare with Peter with this rock that Jesus uses. Sometimes people compare uh, Peter to, and they think of him as the Pope. And so in, in terms of Catholic theology, that it's, that it's the Pope that brings the ultimate sense of the, the church. And David Platt in his commentary on Matthew says, this text is not about a supreme Pope. It's about a sovereign Savior. And there within that word sovereign is the word reign. Jesus is king. Jesus reigns. And it's through the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, that people come under his reign when they say yes to him. Which leads us to the second option of this text. What is the rock by which Jesus is saying, I will build a church? It's this proclamation that the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God. That is the proclamation that the church can be built or is built through. Anyone and anyone can say that truth and come under God's rule and God's right when they trust and follow and are baptized, which usher them into God's kingdom. That proclamation is so powerful because we are everyday people. Which means we can go out from spaces of here and say, Jesus is the Christ. And it's through that proclamation to others that they hear about a king and a kingdom. And can trust and follow. And it's through that verbal saying that people begin to go on a journey with us. And learn what it means to live in God's world, God's way. So it's, it's not just through Peter, though God uses Peter. It's not just the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But if we think about the location by which Jesus finds himself in as he asks this question. I said that there was all kinds of temples and all kinds of worldviews present. It's here in this unique location that Jesus asks this question. Jesus is standing on a rock in the backdrop of options. And he asked that question. The options for belief were present. And Jesus says, the gates of Hades, a Jewish idiom also for death, would not stop. See, the way that, that cities were, were built and composed is they had walls for protection. But the weakest point in these walls were the gate, which means... That the church, living under the proclamation of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, will be playing offense in places of darkness. 
That's the comparison here. The rock of the church, the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ in the place least likely for it to be built. Jesus takes his disciples to a place where there were options, where they could choose what to believe. And it's in this place of darkness that Jesus says, I will build my church here. Boy, and isn't that needed for our world today? That the message of Jesus, the proclamation of Christ in places of darkness is where the world is changed. It's not in places necessarily of comfort. It's not necessarily in places where the options aren't present. It's in the marketplace of ideas where you have unlimited options to choose that Jesus stands apart and says, who do you say that I am? And out of all the options, when people respond and say, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and internalize that and respond to it, the church will be built. The church is unstoppable. It's in a world, it doesn't seem like this is the case. Every other entity can be stopped or stifled. In fact, J.C. Ryle says, nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The pharaohs, the herods, the neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away to go to their own place. The true church outlives them all. And sees them buried each in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world. And will break many a hammer still. The church is a bush which is often burning yet not consumed. In those word pictures right there, there's conflict. There's friction. There's a level of pain that takes a molding for it to happen. And it's in these places where the church is present where the church does not shy away from conflict or friction it does not shy away from darkness or places where no good jew would go but precisely under the banner of jesus goes grows and thrives and this is counterintuitive because everything in our world tells us to follow the path path of least resistance You probably experience this each and every day to take the easy option, to just kind of go with the flow or to to do what someone just gives you advice to do. And so then you can shuffle the responsibility onto them because they told me to do it. In a world of options, Jesus stands apart from the options. How? The people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ and the place least likely for it to be built. People aren't expecting the name of Jesus to be present in your workplaces. They're they're expecting it to stay private in your homes, relegated to the margins of your life, limited to an hour on Sunday. 
stayed off of your social media. But no, the name of Jesus is supposed to be present wherever the people of God are. Everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. That's our vision as a church. On the Mondays and the Thursdays, when there's difficulty and there's conflict and there's confusion, there's an opportunity for the church to be present and be built because you are there when you are under the rule and reign of Jesus. When there's relational conflict in your life and you're not sure where to go and what to do and we can return to the promise that the church plays offense in a place of darkness in the gates of Hades, death, the friction that we bump up against with will not overcome us. It doesn't mean we, we don't experience suffering. It doesn't mean we don't experience difficulty. But the church will go on for generations to become because that's what God has promised. Earlier this week, I participated in my monthly Hazeldell Salmon Creek Business Association, where business leaders from the community come together uh, as part just to, to work on business to, for different presentations. Chief Kristen Maurer of Fire District 6 presented about what's upcoming for the fire district at this last meeting and what it means for the community. At one point in her presentation, she said the district serves 70,000 people. When you run the numbers and following up on that number, 100,000 plus people live within a 10-minute drive of this location, the American Legion, where we worship. 100,000 plus people. One of the reasons Ruth and I were invited, invited to start a new church here is because 91% of people do not believe in Jesus. They would not comfortably and confidently say, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 91%, which means if 100,000 plus people live within a 10-minute drive of this location, it means that 91,000 people estimated don't or wouldn't say yes to Jesus. And even less than that number of that percentage do not trust Christians. As I share that statistic, two words may come to your mind. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by the sheer number and you go, holy cow, that's a lot of people that live within around us. And you feel daunted by the task of a church in a place with so many thousands of people who don't know Jesus. Or maybe you, you think of the word opportunity and say, man, this is such a great opportunity for the church to be light and darkness. Another word comes to my mind. The word is options. 91,000 people in our area believe there are better options than following Jesus. And a high percentage of those people don't trust us as believers. In fact, some of you in this room or even watching online are nodding your head in agreement. You've been reluctant to trust a church. You've been reluctant to follow Jesus. There's a skepticism in your heart and you aren't sure. If Jesus is the best option, what I would encourage you to do is to connect with someone who has been following Jesus 
for a while or has begun the journey of following Jesus in connection to Generations Church. And allow them to share their story about how they are journeying with Jesus and what changes happened in their life. Because when we go on the journey of following Jesus, here's what that good news of Jesus as King provides. That gospel that I talked about, that gospel of Christ, the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ in the place least likely for it to be built. Here's what it provides. A meaning in life that suffering can't take away and can even deepen. A satisfaction not based on circumstances. A freedom that doesn't turn community and love relationships into thin transactions. An identity that's not fragile, not based on performance or exclusion. A way to deal with guilt and to forgive without residual bitterness or shame. A, basic, a basis for seeking holistic justice that doesn't turn you, you into an oppressor yourself. A way for you to face not only the future, but death itself with poise and peace. And in each and every one of those statements, in the marketplace of ideas, there's an idea that says, that's not true. And Jesus, as King, the Christ, the Son of the living God, says, I laid down my life for that to be true. And the church will go on communicating that truth. Which is why I said our, our vision as a church is to be everyday people. Expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. Because of Jesus. Wherever you are, your character and your priorities are linked back to that phrase. Death cannot stop this Messiah or his messengers. And we know this because Christ gives his authority to the church. That's why he says whatever is bound and whatever is loosed. He gives that authority to us. You have the authority to go into your places in your life and say, we want you to trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by you, not me, you proclaiming that to another, they can respond and say, yes, and you've changed someone's eternal destiny because you opened your mouth and you shared that Jesus is king. Some of you feel overwhelmed by, that, by me saying that, that challenge there. But that's why we hang on to the promise that Jesus will build his church. It doesn't matter if you say the words perfectly. It's not like some magical incantation where you've got to say, recite the right thing to make something happen. It's you being faithfully present where God has placed you and trust that the community of people who proclaim Jesus confidently will see that number in our community change. We'll see it go from 91,000 to 90,998. And we'll see that reduced because people will respond to your presence faithfully proclaiming Jesus. Not pretending that you have all the answers but saying, I'm seeking and I am finding. And Jesus is providing. So it means every person can say to another, if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, you will be free from sin, which means you have life. There is authority that's been entrusted to the church. We can be the conduit 
for where eternity is changed for people. This urgency and priority for sharing your faith follows from that truth. But it's in passages like this, that I, and in moments like this, where I'm challenged to be faithfully present and, and proclaim boldly who Jesus is, that I find it helpful to look to my brothers and sisters in other locations throughout the world and what it means to express Jesus as King. Because in the hub and the marketplace of ideas, it's sometimes disorienting. How do we do that well? And we can learn from others. So Xavier Nguyen Van Thon wrote a book while he was in prison in Vietnam. And these were his words. He says, if you wish to become a saint, basically think of a good Christian, someone, someone who's trying to follow Jesus well, do ordinary things well. This may seem insignificant, but pour all of your love into them. You say you're waiting for the right moment to do something truly great. I wonder how many times such occasions will arise in your lifetime. No, take hold of the daily opportunities that arise to perform ordinary work in an extraordinary way. For this, followers of Jesus, performing the many uneventful, unnoticed, monotonous routines of daily life in an extraordinary way under the, guise, under the guide of Jesus was the pathway to mature faith which includes the sharing of one's faith. The uneventful, the unnoticed, the monotonous, doing ordinary things well. Through you, God will build his church. Say that word with me again that we started with. Say rock. rock. That proclamation that Jesus is king has to be your rock so that through that proclamation, wherever Jesus has placed you, his church can and will be built. Jesus will build the church. It doesn't matter how many options are present. The presence of Jesus builds a church with an invincible mission. The church is a community that proclaims Jesus confidently. That's why we say expand the family. That's why, that's why we're, even we're doing two services. That's why we continue to do online. We want to make room for God's family. We want to make room so that people can join God's family because we believe God's family is the best family to be a part of. And sometimes we say that truth within word, with words, but more importantly, we display that truth every day with the character we display and the actions we choose. So here's what that looks like to display it in character and actions. It's when we exist in the places of our work and someone says something, that we go back through a piece of, maybe it's a piece of advice or an encouragement to do a work a certain way. We come back and we check it with Jesus. We read an amazing post on social media and we say, do those words line up with the character and priorities of Jesus? It means when we look at a, a public figure in our culture and we go like we feel, feel like we want to rally around behind them no matter who they are or what they're doing we have to check the, the words from that public figure and their actions against Jesus so that we are aligning ourselves with Jesus that when the the belief the fear when we, when we when we see things only from our perspective when we when we feel like our feelings justify a certain set of actions 
We have to check the belief within our heart. We have to check our feelings. We have to check our perspective with Jesus, which means we have to return to get to know the Jesus of the Bible so that we can proclaim Jesus is king. When enough people are in places of options, you will have an opportunity to advance the mission of Jesus. When you feel overwhelmed, know that the mission of Jesus won't be stopped by you stuttering over your words. At the end of the day, the end of the day, Jesus will build his church. And we have confidence in that. Because Jesus is king. Let's live and let's act like it. And we will see the statistics. We will see our world change. Jesus is king. Let's pray. God, I, I pray in this moment that we be a people who live for you well, who love others well. Thank you for your love and for your grace. Thank you for, the, for laying down your life for us. In just a moment, I know we're going to respond to that fact that you've laid down your life for us and you rose victoriously. Death did not overcome you. You proved it with your life, God. I pray that we cling to that promise. Wherever we go, whatever we do, wherever we find ourselves in, we would faithfully live as if you are king. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.